I'm Shahar Azani and welcome to this JBS very special coming to you all the way from northern Israel. Today I am with my good friend Sarit Zahavi. She is the CEO and founder of the Alma Research and Education Center in northern Israel. Sarit, it's such a pleasure to finally see you here in person in northern Israel. Thank you very much. You've been a frequent guest on JBS sharing your extensive knowledge and understanding with our viewers and with audiences all across the U.S. and the world, providing a much-needed understanding of this complex region. And talking about region, maybe you can share with us a little bit about where exactly are we standing here? We are standing actually below the Israeli-Lebanese border, very, very close to the maritime border that was just uh, agreed between Israel and Lebanon last week in an agreement that was signed between the two yes, countries. Yes, and we'll discuss this soon. And below us, it's Rosh Anikra. And next to us, by the way, a beautiful touristic site I recommend to everybody to come and see. And behind us, you can see the Western Galley. Uh, the differences of the heights are really, really important. It's all about security as well. When we stand on top, you can understand why it's so important for us to have this view on top, this view on top to secure the state of Israel from below. I don't know if the camera can see, but there are also uh, IDF Navy ships behind us over there, uh, securing the seashore of Israel. Incredible. So there is a reason why we're here, because the Alma Research and Education Center covers much of the situation that pertains to northern Israel. And when we say northern Israel, we're talking about Lebanon, Syria, and even beyond. So. The issue of the um, UAVs currently used in the Ukraine by the Russian, manufactured by Iran, are very much relevant to what's happening here. Explain to us a little bit about this topic. What is it and why is it so important to the topics that you're researching? I must say a few things around that. First, Iran is a leading power in developing and manufacturing of UNVs, uh, whether it's attacking UAVs, UAVs that are uh, for intelligence gathering, uh, for smuggling or for suicidal, crashing, uh, kamikaze UAVs, if you like, crashing into the target. These UAVs are being uh, provided to the proxies of Iran in the Middle East in the past decade, maybe even more than a decade. Hezbollah itself uh, in Lebanon is holding around 2,000 UAVs. Some of them are the same UAVs that are used in Iran, in, um, in Ukraine, sorry. So you're saying that Hezbollah, the Shiite terrorist organization, the Iranian proxy, is holding almost, what, 2,000 of these? Yes. That's army, that's I army must, I must tell you something. When we published this uh, assessment of 2,000 UAVs uh, in the hands of Hezbollah, we published actually a report of 50 pages that elaborates all 50 types of UAVs that Iran uh, manufactures and actually develops. Some of them are, uh, were developed originally by Iran. Uh, all reporters quoted the report, but actually they quoted only this line saying that Hezbollah is holding 2,000. It was a surprise for everybody. Now, after we have seen the amounts that are being used in Ukraine, we understand that maybe this was an understatement uh, with regard to Hezbollah. Uh, we saw how the proxies of Iran are using this here in the Middle East against the UAE, against Saudi Arabia to remind everybody what happened in Aramco in 2019. Right, that actually, yeah, and that actually uh, stopped the manufacturing of oil for about uh, a few, at least a few days. Uh, UAVs can cause damage. They are very accurate. They are for uh, very long distances. Those who are used in Ukraine 
are for a distance of around 2,000 kilometers. That's, that's a long distance. Uh, we, uh, we, in, in this region, we understand the context of that distance. Moreover, UAVs, Iranian UAVs were provided to Venezuela, which, are, which is, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 right. kilometers from Miami. Right. Um, take, that in, take that in consideration. So what's happening now, to the best of your understanding, as far as the usage of these UAVs in the Ukraine? What are the Iranians doing there? The Iranians became a supplier of aerial attacking uh, force and power to the Russians. UAVs, we already, it was confirmed that this is what they provided, but we already seen reports that it may be not only UAVs, maybe also a different kind of cruise missiles and missiles. Uh, again, if we compare that to the uh, arsenal in the hands of Hezbollah, uh, they have tens of thousands of missiles over here in Lebanon. Uh, and the same types can be provided to Russia as well, that we understand now that has uh, problems with lack of ammunition. So Iran, you're talking about Venezuela, we're talking about Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, um, a major destabilizer of, uh, uh, in, in this region, not to mention what Iraq. we've seen recently, Iraq, not to mention what we've seen recently, what's happening within Iran with Mahsa Amini and what they're doing to their own civilians. Um, and it's quite incredible to, uh, in this context to think about Iran being um, a, a, a party that's welcome on the international stage, that negotiations take place on the, on, on the nuclear issue, as if Iran is a legitimate player, and yet it's, bu it's busy doing so much of these negative activities that undermine regional stabilities across uh, the globe. For me, it's really difficult to understand. Uh, we've been saying for years, that what the Iranians are doing is not uh, damaging only the state of Israel. And it's not the problem only of the state of Israel. It's a problem of all the states of the Middle East. And it is becoming a problem in Europe as well. And first and foremost, the Ayatollah regime of Iran is a problem for the Iranians themselves. And we've seen this within the past few months protest inside Iran. Whatever happens in this crazy Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. Now we are learning that. And I think this is the, the point where international community should understand that when they talk about nuclear deal or somebody attacking the nuclear sites in Iran, it's not a problem for Israel. It's a problem for the whole world. It is within the interest of the whole world to make sure that Iran will not become nuclear in any way that is possible. Right. And this is why the work that you're doing is very relevant, not just within the geopolitics of Israel itself, but far beyond, which leads me to, to the next issue. We're talking about UAVs, and we know that Hezbollah sent UAVs to the uh, um, uh, oil rigs, to the gas rigs um, within the sea. Let's talk about the gas deal that was recently signed between Israel and Lebanon with U.S. mediation. We've heard a lot of claims about this deal. Wonderful deal, horrible deal. Um, <laughs> Israel caved in, didn't cave in. So we had to find um, somebody who understands the material and does not come from a political standpoint. Sarit Zahavi of the al <laughs> Education Center. Tell us about that deal from your perspective. Look, for a decade there were negotiations. A decade. That's a nothing decade new. A decade of negotiations uh, between Israel and Lebanon, uh, not directly, by the mediation of the Americans, about marking the maritime border. While Israel had a position that was presented to the UN, let's call it now 
line number one. Mm -hmm. And the Lebanese presented a position to the UN, let's call it line number 23, mm -hmm. okay? In the middle, between these two lines, which are actually a triangular of 800 square kilometers, there was a line named Hof Line after the mediator that presented a compromise that gave the Lebanese 60% of the uh, area and the Israelis 40% of the area. During the years, the Lebanese uh, failed to agree to this uh, and we couldn't get to an agreement. Now, what happened two years ago is that Israel found gas. Uh, quite a big reservoir of gas. That's the Shark Rig? That's the Shark Karish uh, gas reservoir. And a few months ago, a floating gas rig of a company named Energian arrived to this gas rig. A few months after we had found gas, like two years ago, in this place, the Lebanese all of a sudden announced that there is a new position that actually more than doubled the area of dispute in their point of view. Let's call this new line, line 29. Israel didn't accept that. The American negotiator didn't accept that. It's impossible all of a sudden to present a new line. And why it's so important? Because this new line that the Lebanese presented goes in the middle of Karish Gaz Reservoir. Mm -hmm. So now the Lebanese claimed Israel is stealing the, the Lebanese gas. Right. We're not going to enable that. At the same time, they also published that they made polls, theoretic polls, about whether there is gas on the Lebanese side, and they name a gas reservoir which they believe exists on the Lebanese side, named Kana. By the way, after Kfar Kana, the village of Kana in oh, South yeah. Lebanon, that is in the collective memory of the Lebanese, a village that suffered two, two real incidents. Uh, of collateral damage by Israeli attacks in previous conflicts. So again, you can understand, you know, the narrative, the, the, the vibe, the small clue to what I'm going to say next. 17% of these alleged, alleged because there, were, there was no exploration at the zone, so only polls. So based on what did they say, there was gas there? Polls. No exploration at the zone yet. Okay. So nobody knows how much gas is there, if at, if at all. But they signed an agreement with a French company to come and search for the gas. And after the French company will do its own exploration and we will understand how much gas is there, Israel will be compensated. And here I need to explain what happened last week is that after a lot of pressures by the Americans that saw, uh, I will call it the political timing political timing because there were elections in Israel and the Lebanese president just ended his term and they, couldn't, they can't agree upon a president. Wanted to get a deal. And at the same time, on top of all of that, the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Asrara, declared while sending drones against the Gazans of War Karish, declared, I'm going to war for that. If there will be no agreement between Israel and Lebanon, Israel will not be able to harvest the gas. I have missile and I'm quoting that can get to Karish gas rig and further, further in depth to other gas rigs of Israel, which of course, this is a very problematic threat. I must tell you in Israel, there was a debate whether Nasrallah means business or not. I travel on the borderline every day 
This is a different borderline than it used to be two years ago. Hezbollah is present. It was prepared. And I took Nasrallah's threats very seriously. And eventually, in this constellation, Israel made a concession. Israel decided to accept the Lebanese position, not compromise. It's, it's not entirety. a compromise. Almost entirety. Almost entirety. We accepted line 23, which is the... Which was the Lebanese position until two years ago. So we, we didn't Line 29 is not even mentioned in the agreement. It's gone. So we, 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 um, we agreed to the later Lebanese position? No, to the earlier. The earlier. To the okay. earlier Lebanese position, right. exactly. We actually made a concession of 800 square kilometers. So they put in a go to take it out? It's a Middle Eastern market. A Middle Eastern market. Okay, right. you're saying, how much do you want for this watch? Uh, $200. Okay, I'll pay you $100. No, 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 no. You know what? Since you said that, I want to charge you $300. Right. No, $300, it's impossible. So let's make yeah. a deal. Compromise, $200. <laughs> this is Perfect. kind of what happened. Use that trick. <laughs> <laughs> kind of what happened here. Right. Except for five kilometers. Okay. Five kilometers from the seashore where we are, into the, sea, into the sea, where Israel marked the border along its position, its original position of Israel, by buoy lines, was accepted by the Lebanese as the status quo, not the international border, right. as the status quo. Like, let's keep the status quo right. at these first five kilometers. But for them in Hezbollah, Israel is a status quo, right? Like, they don't even... No, more than that, after the agreement was signed, Hezbollah announced that these five kilometers are occupied territory by Israel. To conclude, yes, we gave up uh, some territory. We gave up. But we didn't give Karish. We didn't give a centimeter of Karish. And, and as for and Kana? As for Kana, 17%, we will be compensated. If, yes. But we will be con compensated on the area which is in the Israeli area at first place. Right. Not the area which is in the area of dispute. This is for the Lebanese now. Because and only we'll if gas is found there. Yes. And I, I just want to ask you this. We hear about Hezbollah's position and threats of war, but we've all heard, you know, we remember the terrible bombardment and the explosion at the Be Beirut port. We remember what happened um, in general in Lebanon when it comes to the terrible economy. The situation there is still bad. The situation there is deteriorating as we speak. So, and we've seen that continuous deterioration. Under these circumstances, you, you deem Hezbollah's threat to be credible? What does it have to lose? If there is war, again, I'm not saying that there is war tomorrow. Right. I'm, I'm not even... to understand if the situation in Lebanon hampers their desire to go to war because they're more focused <laughs> it's on... It's kind of happening. a very fragile balance. Right. And you mentioned the economic situation. Because if they have nothing to lose... Right. And they know that if Lebanon will be damaged by war, and there will be a lot of Israeli attacks as well, eventually what will happen is that a lot of money, international money will get into Lebanon. And all the conditions that we see today for this international aid will disappear if there is war. So I'm not saying that Hezbollah wants to open war tomorrow, but I'm saying that all of us, Israelis and in the West, should pay attention to the fact that Hezbollah was willing to take the risk of war, which it was not willing to take this risk uh, in the past 15 years since the previous conflict in 2006. But I just want to conclude something about... So deterrence is not for good.
deterrence is never for good. I want to conclude something about the, the, gas. the gas. We, what we gained is for now, again, I'm careful, a safe option to harvest the gas. We took that off the table. Now Nasrallah will have to find a new excuse if he wants to escalate the situation. Okay. The Lebanese will be able to harvest the gas when they will find it. Da, da, da. It will take, I don't know, three years, five years, there are different evaluations. Uh, but it's not a peace agreement. It's not recognition in the existence of the state of Israel, like I read in some of the newspapers. It's not normalization. It's not the beginning of normalization. Hezbollah didn't it's change. armistice. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. This is the most important thing to understand here. We can now harvest the gas. Except for that, nothing's changed. And if we understand that, we understand that actually behind this agreement there is Hezbollah. We shouldn't deny that. Right. The, the, it is what it is. But I, I, you're talking about Hezbollah, and I want to ask you about the chain of command. We all know Hassan Nasrallah, he's media savvy. He loves, you know, the Hebrew media. He's very much... Uh, uh, you know, in full understanding of, of this arena. I think he, to a degree, um, and only from the research side, he could be your counterpart. But what I'm wondering is the chain of command, does he make his own decisions as far as Hezbollah going to war with Israel, or is he waiting as a proxy for instructions coming from the Revolutionary Guards? Shahar, you were a CEO. So I will explain it in, in this way, okay? Imagine that you are the CEO of, I don't know, Google International. Mm -hmm. And you have CEO in Europe and CEO in North America and CEO in South America. You have different CEOs, okay, right. everywhere else. Now, you are uh, calling your CEO in South America or Europe and you tell them you want this, this and that to be done. And they tell you, Shachar, this is impossible because if I'll do that, we'll lose that. You listen to them, you trust them. It's right. your CEO, they are professionals. And if you don't trust him, you fire him, right? That's the relationship between Nasrallah and the IRGC. Okay, Qasem Soleimani, and afterwards, the one who replaced him. It's not about, uh, you know, whatever they will tell you, you will do. It's, there is a dialogue. Right. The Iranians take in consideration uh, the needs of Hezbollah. But eventually, if something will be very, very important for the Iranians, and they will insist, Hezbollah will have no choice. They will try. They, again, there, are, there is a dialogue. Right. But eventually it's the Iranians that are giving the money, no doubt, and the ideology and the platform. Look, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is educating its people to be loyal before to the Lebanese state, first to be loyal to the supreme leader of Iran. That's the education. Let's point. not be mistaken. Right. And we see this all the time. You know, yesterday I took a group to the Lebanese border and I it's gave not them... not too far from here. No, it's, I don't know, 100 meters from us, maybe less, maybe less. Uh, I, I took the group, I gave them binoculars. He took the binocular, one of, one of the group members, he looks up, maybe 400 meters from us, and he says, I see an Iranian flag. 
this is what we see on the border, uh, pictures of Qasem Soleimani and Iranian flags. And we're, we see... we're talking a lot about Iran's influence in the region, the negative influence, the um, regional destabilizer. And I want to ask you about something that's um, been happening recently. And we've seen that a lot. We hear from foreign reports about incidents around Damascus and certain explosions happening in those areas attributable to, you know, a certain Middle Eastern power, superpower. And I'm wondering what's behind um, Iran's armament of its proxies in the region? How does it work? You recently published a report talking about uh, the supply lines. Share a little bit about what it means, because I think so many of our viewers just miss it, or it's a sub-headline, and yet it has so much strategic significance to understand what's happening here. What you're saying is all about, you know, this is the startup nation. Right. Israel had to fight what Iran is doing in Syria and in Lebanon. Israel had to fight the fact that Iran is trying to bring advanced ammunition. I'm not talking about bullets and rifles. I'm talking about advanced missiles into the region from what we call the corridor, that its starting point is in Tehran, right. through Iraq, mm -hmm. then it goes in the middle of Iraq, below the Kurdish areas, through a border crossing named El Bukamal, between Syria and Iraq that became like an, an Iranian town, if you like, all the way either to Aleppo or Damascus and from there to Lebanon, to Hezbollah. Israel had to find a way to fight this. How do you fight this without war? That's the campaign between the wars. That you mentioned- Very important point, the campaign. Campaign between, between the, the wars. wars, CBW, it's going to be learned now in, in the colleges about security. Right. It's a new trick. What's the trick? The trick is, yes, we are attacking ammunition. We want these shipments to stop. We don't want war. And that's why, and you mentioned that beautifully, we don't claim responsibility for the specific attack. And if responsibility is being claimed by Israel, it's because somebody was on its way to carry out a specific attack in a specific place, and we had to prevent that. The rest of that, in 90% of the cases, it's reports in Syria that there was an Israeli attack and I don't know, it, may, it probably happened or sometimes it happened or in most cases it happened. We cannot prove that, but we can evaluate. Now, what, is, what we have found out in our report is kind of a, a graph, okay? I'm saying a corridor, land corridor, aerial corridor, maritime corridor. At first... So Iran is really busy extending its hegemony beyond its borders in every area it can in order to achieve its overarching goal of dominion. If the cat cannot enter from the door, it is entering from the window. If not from that window, it will be from that window. And this is exactly what is happening. They, they cultivated the land corridor. It became difficult when they just started their presence in Syria. So they moved more... more smuggling to the maritime corridor, to the aerial uh, corridor. We've seen flights from Tehran to Beirut with ammunition. We've seen Are flights- Are they using civilian airplanes? Civilian so airplanes. It could be commercial. Don't civilian. fly Tehran, Beirut or Tehran, Damascus. You may have rockets below your chair. There is a uh, for you guys. <laughs> uh, we've seen flights and that's why eventually uh, somebody okay, bombed the International Airport of Damascus to send a clear message, this cannot continue. 
and it was shut down for two weeks and nobody reported it or hardly reported it. It didn't get, you know, to the front right. uh, news. And today what we see is the Iranians understand that again, the aerial corridor, the Marian cor maritime corridor becoming more difficult. So they're moving backwards to the land corridor. And this is what our report is about. The fact that they, uh, what they are doing is building civilian presence in key places, such as El Bukamal, the border cross between in Iraq and Syria. And on top of this civilian base, uh, basic, they can build a military base. This is a perfection of the human shield situation that we've seen in Gaza and, and Lebanon. The understanding that these people will defend their war machines. That's their strategy. That's the strategy in Lebanon. We've seen that clearly it's even easier than in Syria because the population is Shiite. Uh, in Syria, we, you know what? We don't know because there was a demographic change in right. Syria that it's, it's too soon to evaluate. Uh, but yes, this is what they're doing. You know, there is what we call an Iranian neighborhood inside Damascus an Iranian neighborhood inside oh, wow. Damascus, that actually you see Iranian symbols, you see posters of Qasem Soleimani, you see Shiite symbols inside Damascus. Assad, who is, you know, like if you get to the desk of the hotel, you all of a sudden see a picture of uh, one of these Iranian generals uh, in the region. And Assad maybe, I don't know, but not, not on that wall, I'll put right. it this way. And then, all of a sudden, you hear more reports of the Syrians about attacks in these areas, meaning that the ammunition is being brought to, to be hidden inside these areas. And you're whispering in our ear to pay attention because what we're seeing here extends to the Ukraine and extends to Venezuela, not too far from the US. Accurate. It doesn't stay here. Sorry, thank you so much. It's been enriching to listen to your report and understanding of what's happening here in this very complex region. And I want to say what a great pleasure it is to be here with you beyond the squares of Zoom, actually in person, in the same area that you are researching, the kind of and issuing the kind of reports that educate and empower so many of us out there. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you very much. And to you, our viewers, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining us to this very special JBS coming to you all the way from beautiful northern Israel. Notice the serenity of this beautiful place. And underneath it, lava flows. And there is so much to explore. And thanks to Sarit and the Alma Research and Education Center, we are in a much better understanding of not just this neighborhood, but much of ours. Thank you all for watching and for joining us to this JBS very special for Northern Israel. To all of you, I'd like to say Shalom and Lehitraot. Maybe next time right here in Northern Israel. Take care.